0: Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Wednesday, June 29, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for our 33rd episode of The Hail Report is Dante Alighieri Desparte, who is speaking to us from Washington, D.C. I'm in Cincinnati today, where I'm doing this podcast remotely for the first time. Dante, thank you for being my first guest with whom I am attempting this technical feat.
1: <laughs> Great being with you.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Um, let me tell you a bit about our guest. Um, Dante Desparte is Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy for Circle. He's also a member of the FEMA National Advisory Council. He's founder and chairman of the Risk Cooperative, and he serves on the World Economic Forum's Digital Currency Governance Consortium, where you probably know Sheila Warren, who was one of our first podcast guests. I will ask. Um, Dante to tell you more about his company, but here's what his boss said about him. From the first time I met Dante, he struck me as one of the smartest, most articulate and strongest strategic thinkers in the world on economic, financial and policy issues surrounding global adoption of digital currency. So I think you're in for a wonderful treat today and it gives me the opportunity to ask our guest the big questions and to peer into the far future. The shortcomings of legacy payment systems have created an opening for the development of blockchain-based finance. How big is the opportunity? Dante, welcome to the Hale Report.
1: Thank you so much. And that's a a tall order to uh, maintain, so I'm uh, very much looking forward to the conversation today.
0: Wonderful. Well, having an unusual name myself, I'm hoping you don't mind if I ask you about your name and how appropriately wonderful it is that you're working for a company called circle
1: <laughs> well
0: right you know, the,
1: the, the lyric the many allegories both of us could talk about um mm-hmm. so indeed my, my name is dante alighieri named after of course uh, second only to william shakespeare one of the greatest uh poets and writers uh of you know our history um, and I earned that name in no small measure because my mother described the birth uh, as a journey through hell to find paradise. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> she sounds amazing, actually. Yes. <laughs> you know, my mother's name is Melody. That's how I became lyric. So there's a story yeah, there too between our mothers. A story and a name. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if you don't mind giving us for our, our listeners who don't know about Circle, if you would mind giving us a, an introduction and telling us who your customers are and how USDC works. Um, that I think that would be very helpful.
1: No, very happily. So Circle is a digital financial services firm, and we are the issuer of a dollar digital currency known as USDC. The analogy I could describe for the listener is, remember that moment in time where you could take a CD collection and change its form factor into an MP3. You still had the music, but by virtue of changing the form factor, your music now inherited a series of user controls and user powers that were internet-like, right? So with an MP3, you could hit pause, you could hit skip, you could advance, And you could transmit music in many more open ways than you could before if its only form factor was physical in the form of a CD. So Circle has done that with the dollar, right? That if the dollar remained a physical instrument only, Mm -hmm. then it would have a lot of limitations, many of which were made painfully obvious in the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, Circle has changed the form factor of, the, of a dollar without changing the transmiss- transmissibility of U.S. monetary policy, nor the fundamental trust in what the dollar represents. And so it's a medium of exchange, a store of value and a unit of measure for this amazing fast growth world of Internet commerce or what some are describing as the third generation of the web, Web3. Um, Circle's at the cusp of that with a $55 billion digital currency in circulation.
0: But you don't want to end up like Napster, right? So there's this issue of regulation and deregulation and decentralized you know, finance that uh, you know, they, re- they ran into with the peer-to-peer sharing of, of those files, right? No
1: doubt. And, mm-hmm. and if ever you needed a, a teachable lesson in uh, the, the bright red lines of where the authorities of central banks lie, um, my, my journey into this industry began in earnest with uh, the, the project formerly known as Libra, later DM um, oh, that, okay. set, that set up a lot of the boundaries about where the public interest said, who can and cannot innovate around the movement of money around the planet. So Circle, as a company, of course, respects those boundaries and understands them fundamentally and we're licensed comprehensively in the United States and also expanding that, that platform around the world. On a level playing field to companies like PayPal and Stripe and Apple Pay and others. So we think reconciling this digital currency era with the pre-existence of electronic money rules and state money transmission rules is a really good foundational starting point for can the movement of money on the internet be well-regulated while at the same time creating much more optionality in payment systems than we have today.
0: So in essence, um, and and correct me if I'm wrong, you're a trusted custodian. Is that right for these transfers?
1: Well, so Circle, Circle today um, lives under state money transmission in the United States. Um, so, for example, when policymakers, regulators, senators, and others describe this world of cryptocurrencies as an internet wild west of um, sort of internet banking or internet hot money with no rules behind it. We take great umbrage on behalf of the nation's state money transmission and banking supervisors, which is that the U.S. states are the laboratories of of financial innovation in in the country. And there's a whole host of rules around prudential guardrails and, you know, managing reserve assets as much as there are guardrails around um, uh, payment systems risks. And then finally, through bodies like FinCEN in the Treasury Department, there, there are a series of expectations of good conduct with financial integrity and anti-money laundering and giving bad actors no place to hide. Um, the sum of these innovations are really, really important drivers of what I call the three I's financial inclusion, financial innovation, and financial integrity. And our job as a company is to ensure those three eyes are maintained in balance and that one doesn't, you know, trump the other.
0: So um, you've just been talking about state regulation, U.S. regulation. What are the challenges to your expansion internationally? And is there a company that you admire that has done something similar to that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, there are many companies that we could Analogize to an admire in terms of how they have managed to be good category creators, right? So I think what Circle is doing in the payments category could a- analogize quite nicely to what companies like Intel has done with computer processing or what a Google has done to search. These are not categories these firms have created, but in some respects... Their focus on excellence, their focus on trust, and their focus on sort of the value added that these instruments can create in a networked environment um, ends up creating a network effect as well. Um, And so I think those would be the types of firms on the technology side that, uh, you know, that Circle perhaps compares to, even though we're very early still in this journey. Um, On the financial services side of things, I actually think of us as a very healthy and very important challenger. I have an article upcoming in Project Syndicate in which I posit the question, would taxis accept credit cards as ubiquitously as they do if it wasn't for Uber? And I I do think it's really critical in often monopolistic or duopolistic financial services environments that the idea of an open payment systems innovation is a really critical challenger in creating payments optionality, uh, where otherwise... You know, consumers live in walled gardens, and there's very limited interoperability of payment systems that have not had a systems upgrade in more than 50 years.
0: Right. You know, I see you as a kind of infrastructure company of the future. And I wonder, do you think that every Fortune 500 company is going to need to have these digital currency capabilities, much as they suddenly needed to, to, to incorporate the Internet?
1: And well, th- how soon is, is this
0: coming? Yeah,
1: that, that is uh, no pun intended, lyrical to my ears, because that's exactly as we see ourselves. And the good news is, is you're no longer alone in that in that estimation of the company as an infrastructure provider. As a matter of fact, uh, Sir John Cunliffe with the Bank of England recently observed that the companies that survive this particular crypto winter, as the the industry calls it, right. <laughs> perhaps the deepest, darkest. And, you know, analogous in hindsight to the dot-com bubble, the companies that survive this particular correction in the digital assets market will be the Amazons of the future. But I think of our fundamental business model very much as infrastructure. The key distinction is that where most financial infrastructure providers live in the world of proprietary technology that favors incumbents and, and does not promote competition or interoperability, We live in an infrastructure world where the technology is non-proprietary and therefore meant to level the playing field for, you know, a host of of different operators, large or small. And and so that world is coming and it's coming very fast. And I'm happy to report a few items that kind of signal that digital assets, that the bridge between digital assets and real world financial services is not only being built, but that it's coming at us very, very quickly. Um, Some examples... Uh, MoneyGram, for example, is using USDC, our digital currency, for cross-border payments and complete interoperability between a digitally native payment and the ability to have a cash in and cash out point and convertibility across multiple global currencies. Um, Major, major merchant acceptance networks like WorldPay and major payments companies like Checkout and Visa and MasterCard and others are using USDC as a settlement option Mm. not as a substitute for the dollar or not as a substitute for other alternative payment methods, but as infrastructure for this always-on, 24-7 internet native commerce that can be supported when the dollar becomes digitized and suddenly it can become programmable and and available across these open networks. So that's very much an infrastructure play, not not competing with the dollar as some people like to frame the stablecoin versus central bank digital currency debate.
0: Right. And one common misunderstanding is that digital currencies are the same as cryptocurrencies. And what do you feel about the development of those central bank digital currencies? If I remember, you made some comments and said that they were absurd or ridiculous. But to, <laughs> so I know how you feel based upon what you, but could you explain that? And also, you know, this idea that you know, as you know, uh, my field is, is more China than anything else, is that some people are saying that in order to compete with China's central bank digital currency, the United States has to do the same. I have a feeling you'd be in violent disagreement with that.
1: Well, it's, it's a, so first, I feel like I have to, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there, beginning <laughs> with the, the, the crypto, the crypto that the world uses as a single term of art to describe this new volatile asset class comes from cryptography, which has lots of superpowers that really matter, not the least of which is cyber resilience, not the least of which is the preservation of privacy, and and not the least of which is, of course, the ability to grant you and I uh, utility on the internet that we would not otherwise enjoy if the internet remained stuck in web one or web two. Where Web 1 was the read environment, where we were consumers of any information published on the internet. Where Web 2 was the environment where we could suddenly interact as readers and writers, which, which created the Cambrian explosion of internet commerce and tech titans, and a lot of externalities as well. as those social
0: media, titans. too. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, mm-hmm. every, every wave of innovation has a negative externality, but it also unlocks novel industries and novel value. Web3 is the domain of reading, writing, and owning content, and it has bigger implications than financial services um, of this idea of digital scarcity and, and unlocking peer-to-peer value. Incredibly powerful. So cryptography has a lot to do, including with USDC and, and Circle's business, but we, we definitely want to solve for one of the original sins of the, of the blockchain and crypto era, which was the hyper-volatility of the original assets that uh, never ever quite became payment systems. However, they became interesting instruments and interesting investments. Some liken it to digital gold and so on. But the idea of price stable internet native payments has not been made possible until Circle and until USDC really took off. And what we're building is this idea of complete interoperability of payments, perhaps uh, you know, in a world where, um, you know, because you're, you're deep in the foreign policy discussion, this is internet money for Thomas Friedman's hot, flat, and crowded world. You don't send a cross-border email. If this reaches the type of scale it can reach, you will interact with trusted counterparties on these networks, irrespective of borders. And that's a very, very powerful way of competing at the geopolitical level in what, what some are describing as a, a digital currency space race. I think the West and the United States is winning in no small measure because the rules-based innovation is happening here, And the dollar, ostensibly, is already the currency of the Internet.
0: Right. And China, in fact, has outlawed, basically outlawed, uh, mining and trading of all cryptocurrencies that they don't control. So, you know, what I try to get my mind around, Dante, is this idea, you know, having, um, you know, looked at Bitcoin for, for many years now, the decentralized aspect of it. And yet what you're talking about is about trust and centralization and de-volatization. Um, how do those two things coexist at the same time?
1: Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's a really, really important question. And, and at some level, it's one of the perhaps fallacies of the digital currency and crypto economy, right? As you could probably detect... I'm neither a crypto utopian, nor am I a crypto anarchist, right? I'm a crypto pragmatist. And in the middle is where the domain of institutional adoption lives. In the middle is where you could do something meaningful for financial inclusion, which is a globally endemic problem that, you know, many of the world's... um, uh, traditional financial services players, humanitarian agencies and institutions have admired for hundreds of years and have done little about. Um, and so I agree with you that that the, the piece of the puzzle that is the hill we should be prepared to die on vis-a-vis decentralization is the fact that the fundamental infrastructure on which these innovations live are open source. And that's a very big distinction than what some in the crypto utopian camp describe as this you know, uh, utopic state where everything is free on the internet and there's no authority that governs it and we're living in a trustless environment. Um, trust matters enormously, as we saw with the collapse of the algorithmic stablecoin Terra not long ago, that it is really good to have a backstop. It's really good to have accountable parties who can react and who could coordinate um, in the middle of a stress test. You're seeing the same dynamic play out today and what I would liken to the, the crypto equivalent of the troubled asset relief program that a lot of companies have run into liquidity problems at the moment. And it's pretty nice to have centralized actors who can intervene and stave off broader contagion uh, in this market. So that's where the pragmatist lives, the, 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 pra- you know, the pragmatic person lives. And I think it's where you can make the biggest difference for the most people.
0: And then also, you know, in terms of investment, um, uh, where do you stand on the uh, grayscale ETF and what do you think will happen July 6th? And why is there such opposition to a Bitcoin ETF when there are futures contracts that already exist?
1: Mm. That's a really good question. And, and I think, you know, many other countries around the world have um, taken this approach that the United States is just sort of now catching up to.
0: Uh, Canada, the idea that- Yeah.
1: Well, exactly. Canada has one, and many other jurisdictions uh, have been leading the charge in terms of a whole-of-government approach to digital assets and regulating them comprehensively and and pretty thoroughly. Bermuda is another example with the Digital Assets Business Act, which was ostensibly the first and one of the furthest-reaching. Um, you've seen similar rulemaking coming out of other major jurisdictions. I think the challenge we have in Washington today is what I like to describe as a regulatory Game of Thrones, because Uh at some stage throughout the life cycle of any digital asset, it may have properties that resemble a security, properties that resemble commodities, properties that resemble currencies or collectibles. But to have a single stroke approach that makes this entire novel industry conform with rules of the 1930s. That kind of operating tension is the issue that crypto brings to the table that's very distinct. So, I, I don't know what will happen with the crypto ETF or the Bitcoin ETF work, but I do think it's really critical. Just like the CFTC back in 2018 created regulatory certainty for Bitcoin and Ethereum, and around it, you have clear guardrails, clear market conduct, and a clear industry that's been built up in the United States imagine what would occur if the SEC had a similarly enabling environment and prudential regulators at the federal level had a similarly enabling environment. We would bring this entire industry into what I like to describe as its blue checkmark moment, where you could, we, you could wade through the good from the bad and you could pull the industry into the light of day. Uh, the regulation through enforcement model isn't good for brand America. It's bad for competitiveness, but it's also bad for the industry and for consumers.
0: You know, um, you are on the advisory board of FEMA, and uh, you said your favorite topics are risk readiness and resilience. So what is the, what do you think the role of government should be in creating less risk for consumers in this area? And as you know, um, and I read something you wrote about Baltimore, the lessons from Baltimore's ransomware attack, how do you think the government should be protecting citizens? What is their proper role? so that they don't interfere with innovation, as you were talking about.
1: Yeah, so I, I should say I've, I've stepped down recently from FEMA's advisory board, but but I served for three years um, uh, throughout a period of time where every complex risk that you could imagine, many of the ones that I featured in the book I wrote back in 2015, reared their ugly heads, right? So we, we're living in the era of anthropogenic risks, risks that have agency and risks that you as the actor defending against the risk have to be right 100% of the time, but the risk has to be right once to sow incalculable havoc. So during my course of uh, sitting on FEMA's National Advisory Council, one of the points I always drove home was, um, you know, for example, in the insurance markets and, and the FEMA response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico the body of evidence that the, um, a disaster survivor has to demonstrate in order to receive any support, whether it's from an insurance policy or from FEMA or from local emergency management agencies, that body of evidence often is lost with the property, right? So your own homeowner's policy, your own life insurance policy is buried in a drawer and the beneficiary may not know that they were supposed to be protected in the first place. So FEMA denied something like 60 percent of um, property claims in Puerto Rico uh, because of that exact risk. So the advent of technologies like public blockchains that have an inherent disaster proofing in their design um, have some really novel properties around, you know just the storage of information that is critical. Many countries have turned to blockchain for you know property registries. And this irrevocable, irreversible, disaster-proof ledger has some powerful implications there that I've been advocating for for many years. The other piece of the puzzle is if you think about a payment instrument like USDC that is instant and device-centric, as a country, we mobilized more than $6 trillion in counting of taxpayer-funded intervention that was supposed to be designed to support the, the worst among us and small businesses and people, but we turned to analog rails to move that money. And so if you received a check from the IRS for government to citizen payments, effectively that check was a liability if you were in a rural community, you had to drive to a bank to cash it and so on. Um, And then we subjected that sum of public money to an enormous amount of fraud and risk that is not auditable. And so I think the idea of programmable money for the liquidation of insurance claims, the liquidation of government to citizen payments, and as a domestic payment system Innovation that, that, that can sort of withstand cybersecurity threats plus withstand any kind of collapse of the banking system, as we saw in Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, a six-month-long blackout that was the second longest in the world, create some really novel payments optionality at the domestic level, let alone the cross-border remittances, which typically are recession-resistant. But in the course of the pandemic, we lost $200 billion of those payments. Um, huge implications for global development huge implications for uh national and global security. Uh so I think innovating at the core of the payment systems infrastructure really really vital and and in FEMA and the national mobilization for COVID-19 underscores uh you know what those opportunities look like.
0: So the government can give, the government can protect um but also the government can take away in the form of taxation. And there's been discussion you know at the beginning of the internet there was no sales tax. And the thought that I believe it was Bill Clinton had was that why, you know, you, you don't want to kill the baby in the bathtub. You want the baby to grow first and then be able to, to tax it. And now, of course, people are used to paying tax when they order from Amazon. What do you feel about taxation and cryptocurrencies? And um, it, it, I don't know. I haven't really read anything that's really comprehensive about that and how that might develop.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal phenomenally interesting question but it also underscores you know one of the one of the kind of aha moments the industry the crypto industry had to realize was that Washington matters was with the infrastructure bill. Um so I wrote an article in Fortune magazine that you know the infrastructure bill was a little bit of a wake up call for this industry that might otherwise have been framed as amorphous decentralized headquartered on the internet. Uh, there was a provision in the infrastructure bill to look to crypto as a broad industry to, to fund a $30 billion provision in the infrastructure bill. Um, and then there's also there's a little bit of a, an irony that many assume you know crypto assets are being used for the circumvention of compliance rules, the circumvention of tax payments, and so on. I, I live in a world, unsurprisingly, where I actually think these innovations can be incredibly meaningful. Uh, for, for uh, the collection of public receipts and, and funding of public finance. Um, in fact, uh, years ago, in partnership with uh, EY, the World Bank, and the New America um, Foundation, where I was a senior fellow once upon a time, we created something known as the Prosperity Collaborative. The use of blockchain-based payment systems and blockchain-based ledgers to effectively close this enormous, yawning global public finance gap of the inability to collect, uh, you know, tax receipts, whether for sales or for income or any other source, um, the ability to do this in nearer to real time with greater auditability and with the removal of friction. Um, I think that's a, that's a necessity, but that's an opportunity environment for these technologies that are open source to be leveraged in the public sector more strategically.
0: So what you're describing is very open-ended, very exciting. What are what limits the growth of this sector the most? Is it talent? Is it capital? Is it the regulatory issues we've been talking about? What do you see as the limit on growth?
1: Well, so, so this one I have a pretty strong opinion on, right? So to the extent we are in a fierce digital currency space race, and the fight for the future of Web3 is one of the biggest and most important technological contests of our time, which I happen to believe it is then the only way we will get there is the same way we won the actual space race. Our political leadership gave us a destination. My challenge right now for the United States and frankly for the West is that we're still taking a risk-based approach to looking at these innovation and and these novel industries. It's one of the few bright lights of of an otherwise anemic global economy, inflation-ridden global economy, and monopolistic or duopolistic global economy that favors incumbents. This is one of the few important challenger industries we have emerging. And its ability to thrive hinges in no small measure on politicians and regulators starting to describe the art of the possible. Um, so I wrote a paper uh, titled The Great Correction. It was my my year of sanity in the first year of the uh, pandemic, and in The Great Correction, my co-author and I, to Tamika Tillman, we look at all of the areas of our society that had pre-pandemic vulnerabilities, but for which technology was the only source of continuity. Government, household, educational, political, security continuity hinged on technology. And so this idea that technology is a bigger liability than it is an asset, um, you could backtest to the COVID-19 pandemic and say, well, time out. What kid would have had educational continuity but for Zoom? What vote could have been cast more easily and efficiently in the midst of quarantines at a time when democracy itself was at risk? If we had technologies that could record transactions to trillions of dollars with safety and auditability, that would have been a pretty nice thing to have in the hands of everybody in America. Um, And so I think, you know, I'm not yet fully encouraged, but I'm reasonably optimistic that we'll get there. But I would love for the political leadership in our country to establish a destination for this third generation of the web and establish what we expect perimeters to look like for good conduct and then let the innovation thrive.
0: If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and The Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. What will the world look like, Dante, do you think, in 2050? Will the legacy financial institutions still be there? Where Will Bitcoin or Ethereum win on the other side? And you know, will a company such as yours sort of knit the two together if we're going to have both coexisting at the, the same time? How do you see that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So one of my professors and sources of risk inspiration Uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb in his book Anti-Fragile describes the idea that if you want to know what the world looks like in 2050, look at the world 100 years ago, 300 years ago, 1,000 years ago. And the things that are the most enduring are often the things that that, that are hard to supplant and hard to replace. Trust is hard to replace and hard to supplant. Um, So I actually think these innovations are not about substitution. And that's one of these um, false narratives that novel industries often labor under, is that crypto is about self-sovereign money and will one day make the dollar irrelevant. But if you digitized the Zimbabwean dollar and you created a digital twin, it's still the sum of the parts. It would be a hyperinflationary, digitally native digital currency. (laughs) Um, And so the, the sum of the institutions really deeply matters because those are the sources of trust when there's a stress test. All of a sudden, NATO matters when when there's a stress test, right? Um, So my suspicion is that in 2050, you will still have banks, you will still have banking, you will still have the dollar, but you will also have these important companion innovations that recognize that all of that trust must also live at a device-centric level empowered by open software and open technology. That's additive, that's not substitutional.
0: You know, I'd like to ask you, Dante, what, I, I think all of our listeners are getting the flavor of this, but what motivates you to do the work you do? And how did you decide in the first place to do what you're doing today? I always ask my guests that, and I've had some pretty surprising answers. How did you get involved, especially in, in the study of risk?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. So uh, risk found me more than I found risk, but okay. why I'm so ardent about it and perhaps a little bit unapologetic and always on a soapbox about these issues is because it's not an abstraction. I grew up poor in Puerto Rico, which would make Mississippi look rich. I'm the first person to get through high school or college. So I feel like generally as a person, there's no time to waste in making the world marginally better, even if it's one person at a time. And I have a deep fundamental understanding of, you know, if value can only be transmitted through brick and mortar, then a lot of humanity, including here in the United States, will be in trouble. Um, and so so to me, these innovations are about lowering the rung of economic mobility a step lower so that it's in reach for people that I could relate to. Um, we also have, I think, deep post-9-11 challenges enshrined in our View of what makes the world safe and what makes finance safe that haven't had a systems upgrade either. You know, the presumption for 50 of, years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, so it's not mm-hmm. just the technology that needs an upgrade, it's our ideology, it's our mentality, and it's the view that should entire continents and regions of the world be cut off from the formal economy for fear of one bad payment, or should we come up with an operating model? that enshrines certain values into financial openness and, a, and an open ability to send and receive money as freely as we send and receive information. I think that idea that money should be accompanied with a bill of rights to the right of lawful, your use of money should be as free as possible, I think is deeply powerful. And the technology already exists to make it so. What is lacking is, the, is, is imagination.
0: Mm. But it's not just low-cost payment systems, uh, uh, speedy, low-cost payment systems. Uh, one thing that you mentioned in your writing is very fascinating to me, and that's the, I, and I think under-recognized issue, internet-native digital identities. So many people in the world, the reason they're unbanked um, is because they don't have those identities. And we, now we see with war and people you know, losing all of their documents and so forth and moving and migrating. And becoming refugees. Um, how do you see that per- particular issue of the internet native identities and how that could help? It, it, and that's a piece of this puzzle too.
1: Totally right. Totally right. So that one to me is much bigger than low cost payment systems, right? right. It's it's sort of, mm-hmm. if the if it's the, the core, it's
0: your identity. <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> well, cogito ergo sum, right? I think, mm-hmm. therefore I am, I have a digital presence, therefore I am, right? The So, you know, I wrote a lot about the Equifax breach and, um, the Equifax breach for me was one of these points in time where our policy conversation about the presumption of privacy and if the product is free, you're the product. We basically abdicated as a society with, with, with the Equifax debacle. Equifax is one of three major credit bureaus under whose watch every long-term lifelong financial choice you have is going to be dispositive on your entire financial behavior being monetized and you being granted a, a credit number that will tell you a lot about whether you get credit, you get a loan, whether it's low risk or high risk, that has massive lifelong implications. And so, you know, after Equifax, 150 million people, effectively the size of our entire working population, has a lifelong identity theft risk. Why? Because the identity that we use for financial gating is this alphanumeric, unchanging social security number. And it gets productized by one of three firms, Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. So I wrote an article. Um, <laughs> And I researched and I looked through five years worth of Equifax's annual reports. And in the article, I highlight in the preceding five years to the breach, how many times did words like cybersecurity, privacy, data security, and so on showed up in the word count across these five years worth of annual reports? And you'd be surprised—a
0: lot, I bet. Ones, <laughs> not at
1: all. No, they, no, they, fact, didn't they didn't, didn't exist at all. at all.
0: Oh, they didn't you're exist kidding. At
1: all. And so. <laughs> So it was sort of like an Exxon Valdez oil spill of personally identifiable data. It was an accident waiting to happen. And the best we did was slap on the wrist and there was not another conversation in the United States about the presumption of privacy in exchange for financial services. And so blockchain, decentralized identity, digital identity, encryption, and cryptography are powerful ways of allowing people into the world of regulated responsible financial services, without imperiling them and by virtue, our national security, our individual security, and all other risks that are attendant to this, without imperiling them to that lifelong jeopardy. Um, So Equifax domestically is the best case study for why we need these decentralized identities. But the implication is even bigger than that because we have a world of a billion people with no ID. We have a world of, you know, refugees in Europe, courtesy of this horrible war uh, in Ukraine. Um, and if to get an ID is the only step onto the bottom rung of that ladder of economic mobility, then the 1.7 billion who are underbanked will remain so.
0: It's not just banking, Dante. Too, it's also you know women are particularly at risk here, totally. and it for vaccinations think about what that means for vaccinations. If you can't that be identified, right. it's, it's it goes beyond financial, it goes to, to global well, public health, right?
1: And think think of the other use case. So I have a paper for Brookings on the lessons for the next pandemic from this one.
0: I read that. And, Wonderful. And, and, yes. yeah. and
1: one of the points in there is, is, you know, we're using these makeshift vaccine passports of CDC cards and photographs of CDC cards and how fraud prone that whole business model is because it's literally an index card, it would be really great to have decentralized, authenticated, verifiable, decentralized credentials that were device centric, universally portable to the individual, um, that that could ride on these technologies. You're going to need cryptography and you're going to need blockchain to pull this off. Again, it goes back to what's the thing that's stopping these capabilities from becoming ubiquitous. Part of it is a lack of imagination, but another big part of it is the entrenchment of state industries. There's no motivation to compete if you have a a triopoly in the case of the credit bureaus that we just mentioned, right? Um, So so there has to be an incentive to start changing these systems because the systems themselves don't work.
0: So, you know, blockchain is about trustless, a trustless, um, spreadsheet basically. And so (laughs) that's really what it's about. So, um, in this world, what you're saying is in order to build trust, we use need to use trustless devices. And so how does that mitigate, um, you, you've explained in terms of payment and so forth, how this could mitigate risk. But beyond that, what do you think the biggest risk is? right now in the world. What is the thing that really keeps you up at night that you worry about, Dante?
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> the good news is um, very few things keep me awake at night. And it could just very well be that we're all in this state of permanent shock and there's only so much doom scrolling you could do even you as a can do, risk
0: exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's but, exactly but I, right.
1: I do think, you know, the biggest risk typically, like most things in the world, is inaction. And what there can be drawn from the onset of COVID-19 and the speed with which it arrested fortress nations like ours, that something so simple like an N95 mask or basic personal protective equipment for our doctors and not enough surge capacity in our healthcare system, COVID-19 didn't do that to us. The thing that consigned millions and millions of people around the world to death was the lack of preparation and the lack of seriousness vis-a-vis communicable diseases and infectious diseases. So readiness and resilience um, is, about the, is about the acknowledgement that bad things can happen and that you can't buy insurance when your house is on fire. So where else is there a lurking big complex risk on the horizon that the world should pay attention to? And how does the, the speed with which we could create credible vaccines, um, you know, offer some teachable examples of how we could marshal society to address those horizon risks. Climate change, an obvious immediate horizon issue, no longer an abstraction. What are we doing to cover that gap um, societally and how do we move faster with alacrity the same way we created vaccines? Um, I think we need to start building that kind of muscle memory as a society for acknowledging horizon risks and acknowledging that the horizon is not nearly as long as we think and then moving with, with sort of you know, whole of society purpose
0: right so what you're saying is really doing nothing we will be at risk greater risk right
1: right well well look one last paper that i will cite uh more for posterity than anything else uh years ago when i was uh on the board of the american security project i wrote a paper calling for a chief risk officer as a cabinet level position i'm going to update that and describe it as kind of a national resilience directorate That, you know, observing risks that are obvious and enjoy mathematical certainty that are otherwise borne by taxpayers and doing nothing about it to pre-fund it is is sort of like a failure of fiduciary liability. That's exactly how we tackle risk today. When Hurricane Harvey flooded Houston, FEMA didn't have enough money to fund it. Went to Congress, got an 11th hour, $11 billion dollars. And then Hurricane Irma hit, and then Hurricane Maria hit promptly thereafter. So what, whatever was allocated for Houston was now dispatched to other locations across the country. Every single year, it's a mathematical certainty that the country and every community in it will face these big, complex economic events. And our funding strategy is ad hoc. That, that in finance would be, you know... Uh, a failure of fiduciary liability and obligations that we could address as a society and deficit spending. Every time we have a big economic crisis like this is also bad.
0: Right. As we found out. out (laughs) (laughs) Right. As we found out, sadly.
1: Exactly. So we just need to come up with longer range uh, ways of pre-funding resilience and disaster preparedness, as opposed to the cap in hand ad hoc approach that is affecting every single community in the country and affecting every other country around the world.
0: Well, I can think of two issues, you know, um, and one you mentioned already, which was voting. And I cannot understand why we could not have secure online voting. We're coming up to uh, a new election. We have half the people in the United States who are worried that the election will not be accurate or fair. I think that is such a, a existential threat to our country. And yet, is anybody working on that? Why can't in two years for the next presidential election, can't we have a blockchain? Bait? Aren't we smart enough to figure that out in two years if we could come up with vaccines for COVID in a year? I, is anybody working on it? And the other thing that really concerns me is um, the effective interest rate hikes by the Fed on emerging markets. And I am very concerned that this will lead to debt defaults on the part of a lot of developing countries who will be faced with paying off their debt or um, their sovereign debt or being able to buy energy or food for their property. And I know as a politician what they will probably do. And yet there's no mechanism for doing anything about that. The World Bank IMF tried and was they weren't able to do that during covid so, yeah. So those are two yeah, things well, that worry me. What do you think? Just throwing those out there.
1: Well, throw yeah. those are just two light topics, right? Yes, um, right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the end of you know, democracy and the global yeah, financial system, right? Well, you know,
1: uh, I have a colleague who always jokes I have an article for everything. Uh, on this case, I actually do. I, I wrote a piece in Forbes titled Democracy's Digitize or Die Moment a number of years ago. And the, the premise there was not just about the piece about voting, but it was also the digital transformation of government and the provision of digital public goods and public services. So that piece is floating around in the universe. We, we actually, uh, New America and the Blockchain Trust Accelerator ran a project together with other, other stakeholders in West Virginia on blockchain-based voting for overseas veterans, very powerful example that it is possible, and this was a number of years ago. It is completely possible, you know, a technology that can ledger in USDC's case, for for example, we've processed more than four trillion dollars in counting of on-chain transactions with the accounting fidelity that would make the big accounting firms blush. Um, that superpower matters across the spectrum of issues in society, where otherwise. The cost of intermediation and the cost of trust has created this cottage industry of trust brokers. To the extent you could start enshrining that in technology, not as a substitute, but as additive, um, it's incredibly powerful. So, so that West Virginia overseas veteran voting project uh, was real, and those were live, ca- live votes, um, but they were targeted that one constituent of overseas, uh, you know, overseas uh, military and, and veterans. Think about every other person for whom the vote is a cost and an obligation: single parents, mothers, rural families. Um, voting should not be work.
0: No, it should be easy. You should be able to do it on your phone, I think. But it, you know what it really points out is: as trust deteriorates, trustless technologies can can play a very important role.
1: That's right. Well, and and it gets, gets back to this idea that the technology as we described before, you know, with the, 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 some of the fallacies of decentralization and the fallacy of utopia, the technologies themselves are not a panacea, but they often show us where policy regulations and incumbents are falling short. And that gets back to my analogy that would taxis have accepted credit cards and would they travel to the wrong part of the tracks if it wasn't for a challenger like Uber showing up? Um, and so I think that's where we have to, ba- you know, create some creative destructive allowances for things to blow up a little bit, um, and, and create rules. And this gets to my biggest beef with central bank digital currencies: is that before the Libra project was introduced, the idea of a central bank digital currency was sort of buried in the technocratic annals of the IMF and the World Bank and central banks. But generally, when you looked at central banker speeches they had negative sentiments towards the idea because it, it erodes the two-tiered banking system and it turns central banks into retail banks. After Libra was announced in June of 2019, and The Economist has a great graph on this, suddenly central bank digital currencies became en vogue. And today, 105 central banks representing 95% of the world's GDP are thinking about it. But what they're finding increasingly is that it's a, it's a solution in search of a problem that can otherwise be addressed in a rules-based, regulated free market environment. And that's where, you know, Circle lives and companies like ours around the world are starting to pop up as kind of important rules-based challengers to payments, innovations, banking innovations, and so on.
0: Right, and I, the thing I think about them is, you know, it's a perfect way for central banks to institute negative interest rates, right? The $100 you had is suddenly $97. Or also for, you know, tax collection without representation necessarily. So
1: Well, look, I, I, back to the democracy <laughs> digitized or died discussion, you know, I, I shudder to think of the idea of a world in which you could be deplatformed from your money because the party you didn't vote for got, got into power. And exactly. I, I think the air gap between your central bank, your wallet, and how you spend your money is a feature, not a bug. Uh, But notwithstanding that, the dollar and its extensibility around the world as the reserve currency, or what some would call a hegemonic currency, is not, it's that transmissibility, the rails, is the real breakthrough. Uh, And the rails of how value is transferred is the breakthrough. We're doing that with public blockchains, what Visa has done in enshrining the dollar on a plastic card. That transmissibility of money and value is a really important critical power of of optionality, financial inclusion, and responsible financial services innovation.
0: So your thesis and and really circles mission as well is to raise global prosperity through frictionless exchange of financial value. It seems pretty yeah. pretty clear to well, me. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> That's right. And and note that the prosperity piece of the puzzle is what allows me to live on the soapbox of I will not be satisfied if all we do with this critical innovation is serve digital assets, capital markets, or lower fundamental payments. I think we also have to be deliberate about financial inclusion. We have to be deliberate about partnering with humanitarian agencies, and we have to be deliberate about making the future of payments and banking more inclusive than the past, which is why we have a very clear program around um, social impact that's not just about nice words on a wall or our corporate mission statement and value systems. We're trying to do that with agency, with urgency, and with with a lot of focus.
0: So, um, one of my uh, honorary godsons who is um, an Ethereum person asked me, I told him I was going to be talking to you and I said, so what question should I ask Dante? And he said, well, um, as interest rate, and he's an economics major, as interest rates go up, will um, the custodial feature start to pay interest? You know, I guess this is part of with Ethereum and DeFi too, that you're going to be able to lend money as well. It's not just payments, but there'll be that other layer where you can pay out interest and also pay interest in order to get um, access to capital. Do you see that as part of your ultimate mission?
1: Well, listen, I, I think to, to, that's a great question. And it, it's sort of like the next step. Once you've solved for the bottom rung of the ladder of economic mobility is low cost payments. Think of the four S's of payments, how you send, spend, save and secure money. Once you solve for the bottom rung, the next rung up is is the, the products that create wealth and the products that are the bastion of Wall Street at the cost of Main Street are products that for which you need money to make money in the first place. Maturity transformation, yield, capital markets, and so on. And so unsurprisingly, I have an article in Forbes <laughs> that right. talks about you know, overcoming the curse of the weighted average cost of capital is one of the other superpowers of decentralized finance, software intermediate capital markets, and the blockchain era. Um, and so these markets are massively, massively important for allowing people with as little as a dollar to participate in lending and borrowing markets with price certainty and price discovery. And so I'm a big proponent in Circle generally, as a massively big proponent of what decentralized finance and software intermediated capital markets can do for wealth creation and value creation, um, of buying and lending and borrowing and lending markets we're still only in the very early innings of what this can represent. Um, And I think even despite this crypto correction and this crypto winter, you'll see that as an area of continuous evolution and lots of institutional adoption in the years to come.
0: No doubt that this is a bright spot um, in the future. And it's attracting some of the best and brightest to work in this era. But I can't without asking you when is crypto winter going to end how will we know that it's ending what needs to happen so so that yeah (laughs) it's been a long and arduous journey (laughs) yeah
1: well um it's sort of well think of it this one is different right this one is is materially different because it it is culling unstable coins it is eliminating from circulation business models that didn't respect fundamentals. It is a teachable lesson in you know, financial alchemy like, that we saw in 2008. Once you put that on the internet, it's just gonna blow up faster. So, so I think you know, the industry is not monolithic, but a lot of companies, Circle and many others, are building and very persistently, not just growing, but thriving, despite this enormous correction. Um, and I would say you know, the winter will be longer but it, it, this is by no, no stretch of the imagination the end of this industry. It's an important correction, and it's a correction that skews to well-regulated, robust, and, and companies that, that have respect for fundamentals. But it's also a discount environment. That's why I call it CryptoTARP. Um, around this period of time, there, there's a real important discount environment for assets and companies and talent and treasure and other sort of capabilities that are otherwise, um, you know, on the market. Right. Uh, and I think, I think that, that buying environment is another sort of piece to, to, uh, observe and take advantage of right now.
0: Wonderful. Well, Dante, thank you so much. And, um, you know, I think of you as a writer primarily, and I'm wondering, I have a question for you. When is your next book? <laughs> <laughs> well, <it's quite laughs> Do you have time to, fun. time to write it? But I think people would, would really enjoy reading. Um, in one place, all the things that you write.
1: I appreciate that. So I, I've got a couple of books in the works, um, and I've got a number of both book chapters upcoming. And, and um, on my personal website, most of my writing in, in, is available there. So you're right. I, I do write more than I speak. I often write for an audience of one. Um, but there, <laughs> there's some sort of anecdotal story in here uh, on the future of money that uh, I may have to commit to paper someday.
0: I think so. I absolutely think so. So thank you so much for everything. So, oh, could you give us your personal website, the address? So people, I'm sure a lot of people will want to follow up on this.
1: First name, last name, DanteDesparte.com. And um, all the writing is there, upcoming speaking appearances and and, uh, fun things are hopefully available on that website.
0: That's wonderful. Well, I hope I run into you in Washington or New York at one of the council events. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. So uh, that's where I heard you speak and I thought I would really love to interview Dante. So thank you for spending your time with us this afternoon.
1: My great pleasure, Lyric. Thank you so much.
0: And thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, Managing Editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast.